Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Glasgow Times Sports Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. Evening Times Sport, April 27. Chris Jack says, Title 55 means more than anything but cannot disguise Stephen Gerrard's cup failures. One out of nine is not good enough for Rangers. That was the admission from Stephen Gerrard on Sunday evening, and that is the fact that is impossible to ignore. The eight failures all hurt at the time, and the latest one still does for supporters but they are enveloped by the emotion of the single success that means so much. The Premiership title was everything to Rangers this term, and the fact that the top flight silverware will be placed in the Cabinet next month is the be-all and the end-all at Ibrooks. That was the non-negotiable. That was one that just had to be won. Yet the achievement of clinching a 55th league flag does not grant Gerard and his players a free pass, and this historic campaign will have a sense of what might have been, a feeling of underachievement to an extent, about it as the dust settles over the summer. It is a season that will be memorable for so many reasons in both sporting and societal senses, but one which will surely be tinged with regret, as Rangers missed two opportunities to assert their dominance and to add further honours to the most important one of all. Supporters are entitled to lavish praise and celebrate the league triumph, whilst also criticise Gerard and his players for their shortcomings this term. The wins always mean more, but that doesn't take away the pain of the defeats. The final target that Rangers have set themselves this term is the one which means the least. In the grand scheme of things, an unbeaten Premiership campaign matters little, and nobody at Ibrooks would swap that feat for a shot at the Scottish Cup next month. If Gerrard's side do indeed go on to avoid defeat against Celtic, Livingston and Aberdeen, they can be proud of their record. But within a week, Hamden will host another final that they wanted to be part of, and any pleasure gained from their league run will be quashed by feelings of frustration. From the moment the league was secured early last month, Gerard has hammered home the message of the importance of winning the Scottish Cup and of Rangers building on a title triumph 
at the first opportunity. That chance has now gone though, and the defeat to St Johnston on Sunday evening is even tougher to stomach than the one against St Mirren that ended their prospects of winning the Betfred Cup in December. On that occasion, Rangers had seen Celtic lose to Ross County and the road to Hamden had opened up in front of them. This time around, they did the hard work themselves by eliminating their old firm rivals and then fell at the very next hurdle. Those costly mistakes leave Gerard with the record of 1 in 9 that he spoke about in the aftermath of the shootout loss to the Saints at the end of what was a remarkable and dramatic evening. It was just one of those nights and, like the St Mirren game, it would come at the worst possible moment as Rangers lost in the cup rather than in the league. Had the single success under Gerrard been in one of the cup competitions over the last three seasons, then very real questions would have been asked about his position and the futures of the squad that he has assembled. But the Premiership win this season is so significant and so cherished that even another two failures in the Cups cannot take the shine of what will still be a season that is savoured for many years to come. That is why that 1-9 in nine record is palatable to supporters right now. That doesn't guarantee Gerard immunity forever, however, and he knows more than anyone that Rangers must become serial winners in the coming seasons. His record in the domestic cup competitions is frankly unacceptable and the early exits suffered this term are amongst the toughest to take given the superiority that Rangers hold over their rivals and the routes to success that were laid out in front of them. Quarter-final exits in both tournaments just isn't good enough and Gerrard has now failed to progress beyond the last eight stage in three attempts at the Scottish Cup. Aberdeen beat Rangers twice in his first season, while the loss to Hearts in his second was one of the lowest points of his tenure and a moment from which he has done well to come back from. Gerrard has just one final, the defeat to Celtic at Hamden last term, to show for his efforts and he spoke of the need to improve that record in the aftermath of Saints' shock. The relentless way in which Celtic stormed to 12 trophies on the spin should not normalise the achievement. Winning doubles and trebles is still extremely difficult to do and any side that is able to accomplish it deserves their place in history. There could so easily have been a spot reserved for Rangers this term. Ultimately, they were not good enough when it mattered and those feelings of frustration and anger will surely linger for some time amongst Gerard's side and supporters. 
it would be ridiculous to label this season as anything other than a real success for Rangers. But there is no doubt that it has not been as good as it could have been. Gerard spoke about the need to improve in the cup competitions going forward, and only time will tell if he and his squad are capable of making those adjustments that are necessary to ensure they can go the distance in the knockout tournaments. The Premiership campaign has shown how far Rangers have come under Gerrard. The Cups prove that they still have some way to go, says Chris Jack. Evening Time Sport, April 27 Nick Rogers says, Fearsome foursomes vital ahead of Ryder Cup. One of the great joys of writing a column is finishing it and washing your hands of it. Presumably, those of you reading it experience that same sense of unbridled relief when it's done. I always remember catching sight of a gentleman on the train who was nonchalantly leafing through the sports section within these very pages on a Tuesday, trundling into the tune. As he neared the back page, my intrigue was roused, and in curious anticipation, I gently craned my neck to get a better view like someone in the background on the Antiques Roadshow peering in on a valuation of some fusty old hinged trinket box. Would he be an avid fan of my golfing blitherations, I thought to myself, before swiftly discovering that no, he wasn't, as he immediately folded the paper in half upon seeing the words Nick Roger on Tuesday, and started idly examining the small print on a cheap day return ticket from Mount Florida instead. That bloke's not the sports editor, is he? I grumbled forlornly. If it's entertainment you're looking for, meanwhile, then Sunday night's Zurich classic of New Orleans may have been right up your street. The final round was played out in the foursomes format and it inevitably spawned plenty of fluctuating fortunes before Cameron Smith and Mark Leishman triumphed in a playoff. The canny Australian pairing may have plundered the prize, but the event itself gained plenty of plaudits. Graeme McDowell suggested that there should be a 72-hole tour event dedicated entirely to foursomes and showcasing the robust examination that it sets. Said McDowell, there's nothing more difficult than having to hit one and then hand it over to your partner, and then having him hand it back to you. Those of you who regularly find yourself in some quite appalling guddles with your foursomes partner will vouch for the truth in that observation. Of course, the biggest test of foursomes nerve, skill and dovetailing will take place later this year 
as part of two sessions in the Ryder Cup. Podrick Harrington's European side will travel to Wisconsin in September, looking for just a third away win in two decades. Conquering on United States soil can often be as difficult a task as refurbishing Boris Johnson's Downing Street flat on a tight budget. The fact that Europe's team bonding tussles have diminished in recent years may yet have an impact on those ambitions. When the Eurasia Cup a match in non-Ryder Cup years between European and Asian players was quietly discontinued back in 2019, a much appreciated part of Europe's Ryder Cup preparation was lost. Prior to the Eurasia Cup, the Seve Trophy and the Royal Trophy both provided long-standing and worthwhile platforms but they would eventually wither on the vine. In many ways, these events all served a valuable purpose in terms of a Ryder Cup dress rehearsal and were viewed as part of the successful formula of cohesion and continuity that Europe had forged through seven wins in the last 10 Ryder Cup. They all offered potential Ryder Cup players a flavour of the team room environment, of playing in the foursomes and four balls format and gelling with teammates in what is by and large a very individual pursuit. As a, as a breeding ground for potential European captains, meanwhile, the dry run of a SEBI trophy or the Eurasia Cup was hugely beneficial. Paul McGinley, whose Ryder Cup winning captaincy at Glen Eagles in 2014 was venerated to such an extent, he is now permanently perched on a marble plinth, has never underestimated its worth. He said of those successful stints leading GB and I in 2009 and 2011, I wouldn't have been Ryder Cup captain without the ability to prove myself in the Seve Trophy. The aforementioned Harrington won't get such a trial in the hot seat and he will be the first European skipper not to have had a warm-up outing since 2006. Harrington with a stellar CV has nothing to prove, but he would no doubt have relished the opportunity to have a burrow around in a captain's buggy amid the cut and thrust of an event prior to the transatlantic showdown. In this contest of fine margins, every little helps. And another thing, the first picture of Tiger Woods since his frightful car crash in February just about gained more gasps than the ones that got beamed back from the contraption that's beetling about on Mars. Balanced on crutches, wearing a surgical boot and with his dog beside him, Woods posted up an image of smiling rehabilitation to his social media site. 
It appeared just days after details of the PGA Tours Player Impact Program was unveiled. A $40 million bonanza aimed at rewarding those players who positively move the needle. Even in convalescence, Wood doesn't just move the golf needle, he is the needle. And finally, the Scottish Open's title sponsor, Standard Life Aberdeen, is in the process of rebranding itself amid much high-profile ridicule. As of the summer, the financial giant will be known as Aberdeen, A-B-R-D-N, which looks more like one of those jumbled text messages that gets inadvertently composed when you sit on your mobile phone. We look forward to covering the ABRDN SCTSH OPN, says Nick Roger. Evening Times Sport, April 27. Fashion Sakala to Rangers. Jairs to make their move for in demand striker. Report by James Kearney. Rangers are closing in on the signing of KV Ustend forward Fashion Sakala, with the Iberts Club set to offer the 24-year-old a contract, according to reports. Sakala's current deal in Belgium expires at the end of the current campaign, meaning the striker is free to discuss potential moves with interested clubs. Rangers have been linked with Sakala regularly over the last six months and it now appears as though the Premiership champions will make their move for his signature. The Daily Record are reporting that Rangers will offer the Zambia internationalist a pre-contract agreement later this week, with Sakala apparently keen on a switch to Glasgow despite rumoured big money offers on the table from Europe and the Middle East. The record add that Sakala has already held positive talks with Rangers and is close to agreeing personal terms. Ustend had been hopeful of securing a new contract for Sakala, but have now resigned themselves to losing their star striker for nothing this summer when his deal expires. Sakala has 13 goals and 28 appearances in the Belgian top flight this season, in addition to three assists. Report by James Kearney. Evening Times Sport, April 27. Stuart Bathgate says, Poor club forum hindering Scotland stars ahead of Lions' summer tour. If you had recently returned from injury and were in with a chance of making a late bid for Lions selection, as Fraser Brown is said to be, playing in a pitiful performance by your club's side would clearly do nothing for your prospects. Similarly, if your general excellence over the course of the season had taken you into contention for a place on the tour to South Africa, 
as may well be the case with Xander Fagerson. You would not want that pitiful performance to be your last outing before the selection of the squad. Such, however, is the situation in which the two Glasgow players find themselves after their team's woeful display against Benetton on Saturday. Perhaps they were both on a hiding to nothing, in the sense that a solid win by the Warriors in Treviso would have been such a par-for-the-course result that it would surely have had no influence whatsoever on the Lions selectors. But if the inclusion of the two forwards had been teetering on a knife edge, you can rest assured that none of those selectors would be rushing to argue the case for their inclusion. There may be a case for arguing that a low-key Rainbow Cup game should not matter at all, that no matter how well or how badly any individual plays in such a game should be deemed irrelevant. Yet the problem for our home-based players is that, since Warren Gatland invited his assistant coaches to submit their initial squad lists of 36 a couple of weeks back, they have had nothing but a low-key Rainbow Cup game in which to try and tip the balance. South of the border, by contrast, there was a premiership card at the weekend. And this weekend, while Glasgow and Edinburgh are idle, Bath, Leicester and Ulster will take part in the Challenge Cup semi-finals, while Leinster will compete at the same stage of the Champions Cup. Any Lions contender playing in those games will know he has one last chance to catch the selector's eye before the squad is announced on 6th of May. Those selectors are assiduous in their accumulation of evidence for and against each claimant for a place. They will want to see as much proof as possible that a player is capable of consistently competing at the highest level. Anyone playing for Leinster at Lyle or Shell on Sunday, for example, will have the chance to provide such proof. To be fair to Brown, he was easily one of his team's best performers in the 41-26 defeat in Treviso. To be fair to Fagerson, he should not shoulder too much of the blame either for his team's demotivated display. But you can be sure that, in the case of very close debates between the competing merits of various front row contenders, the Lions selectors will not bend over backwards to be fair to either man. Fortunately, several Scottish contenders for a place on the plane to South Africa to have, have some positive evidence in their favour. That historic victory at Twickenham in February, for instance, has been cited by Lions head coach Warren Gatland as one reason why there will be more Scots in his squad this time. Fagerson played in that one, as did Stuart Hogg, Finn Russell, Johnny Gray, 
Hamish Watson, Chris Harris, Ali Price, Rory Sutherland, George Turner and Duhan van der Merwe. All will have figured in selection discussions. And of course, they'll always have Paris. Gray missed out on the 27-23 win over France at the end of March, but the rest were there to give proof of their ability to win at the death in an away fixture against the toughest of opposition, a quality that is of paramount importance according to Gatland when it comes to who to choose to take on the Springboks. So there are still reasons to be hopeful as we look ahead to next week Lions announcement. And we may well still be on course for our greatest representation on a tour for some time. But if that transpires, it will be despite the deficiencies of our domestic game, not because of any supposed strengths, says Stuart Bathgate. Evening Times Sport, April 28 Celtic linked Jesse Marsh latest as RB Leipzig manager change sets up domino effect. Report by Mark Hendry Celtic linked Jesse Marsh's future has taken a significant turn after Julian Nagelsmann agreed to join Bayern Munich. Marsh recently explained how a move to Parkhead would be of interest to him, saying, three or four years ago, being linked with a club like Celtic would literally be an impossibility for me. And now that this is where I am, I always just try to look at it in terms of what would the project look like? Would we have similar ideas in how to build it the right way, invest in the academy, invest in young players, and create this development process that I'm talking about, and not just focus on winning? Obviously, I know that when you're the coach of Celtic, winning is the most important thing. However, despite his praise for the Glasgow Giants, he also ruled himself out of the running and that came because of speculation linking him with the RB Leipzig job, a role just vacated, in a deal which starts at the end of the current season by Nagelsmann. As current boss of RB Salzburg, Marsh is already part of the Red Bulls team, and it is believed he is the natural successor for Leipzig in the Bundesliga. Eddie Howe remains top Celtic target, while Roy Keane and Leonardo Jardim are among the other favourites for the Parkhead position. Report by Mark Hendry Evening Times Sport April 28 Celtic's Ismaila Sorrow Linked with shock Tottenham Hotspur transfer. Report by Mark Hendry. Ismaila Soro has emerged as a shock transfer target for Tottenham Hotspur, it has been reported. 
The midfielder has burst onto the scene at Parkhead this season, playing 22 times for Celtic this campaign. Sorrow is already considered a fan favourite. He is also looked upon as a potential long-term replacement for outgoing captain Scott Brown, who heads to Aberdeen this summer. According to the Daily Mail, Sorrow has been watched by Spurs this season, who could be in line to offer him a way out of Celtic for, potentially, a bigger pay packet down south. It is believed he could potentially face a work permit issue should he mopped to move down south after leaving B'nai Yehuda last year. The 22-year-old Sorrow is contracted to Celtic until 2024, so would command a hefty transfer fee. Report by Mark Hendry Evening Times Sport, April 28 UEFA to make 26-man squad change for Euro 2020 Scotland fringe stars who could benefit Report by Mark Hendry UEFA are ready to expand the international squad number for Euro 2020 from 23 to 26 handing fringe stars fresh hope of landing a dream call-up. Steve Clark has one heck of a job on his hands, narrowing down the Scotland squad to take with him to our first major tournament since 1998. Needless to say, no matter what happens, some players will likely be left disappointed at being left out. But with new plans to add three extra names to the list, it could be good news for some. The likes of Jack Hendry and Che Adams put themselves in a very strong position to make the squad for matches against Czech Republic, England and Croatia after their recent showings against Austria, Israel and the Faroe Islands in World Cup qualifiers. Then there are the likes of John McGinn, Ryan Christie, Andy Robertson, Kian Tierney and Scott McTominay, all surefire starters, never mind members of the squad. A headache for Clark, yes, but a better one to have than when it was Chris Iwalumo and Paul Gallagher vying for the jersey, with all due respect. With UEFA's new plans, there are players currently on the outside looking in who could very well finally get their chance, or at least finally be given the opportunity to link up with the squad if actually playing might still be just out of reach. Here are Times Sports writers taking a closer look at the players who could be given the chance to represent their country at Euro 2020. David Turnbull Celtic's shining light this season. Turnbull was a shock omission from manager Clark's World Cup squad last month. The midfielder has shone for the hoops in one of their worst seasons in living memory, which, given the circumstances, probably warrants a spot alongside his countrymen. 
It did take Turnbull a wee bit of time to finally force his way into Neil Lennon's plans earlier in the campaign, but he has not looked back since. A 26-man squad will surely allow for Turnbull to finally graduate from the under-21 squad where he has done some good work in the past. And with Rangers' Ryan Jack looking like a certainty to miss the tournament, it would be a travesty if Turnbull was not picked. Nathan Patterson The youngster has only played a handful of games for Rangers this season, as was expected. It's never going to be easy when the club captain plays the same position and scores virtually every weekend. But even after just 14 first-team appearances this season, 19-year-old Patterson has shown how good he is and how much potential he has. Stephen Gerrard has trusted him in old firm derbies, Europa League clashes and vital premiership fixtures. By the time Euro 2020 rolls around, he will have come through his suspension for his Covid breach, but even time in and around Premier League quality players and big names of our game will improve him as a player. James Forrest He has been desperately unlucky with injury this season. Had Forrest stayed injury free, this would not even be a conversation. The Celtic winger is among his side's top creators, assist makers and goal scorers and would be a serious asset to Scotland during the tournament. The issue, of course, is whether or not he'll be fit and able to play any game time for his country so early after being ruled out a second time. This is where it gets a bit tricky. Forrest is not a young lad who has never played for his country, so it's not about sticking him in the squad to give him a feel for the international scene. He has been there, done that. If Clark is willing to risk taking the hoops man with him, it will only be for one thing, and that is to put him on the pitch to try and do the business, or leave him at home to recover and free up a space. Ryan Gold Gold has been quietly going about his business in Portugal for a while now, and while his club, Farense, may not exactly be lighting the Primera Liga on fire in 17th spot, the former Dundee United and Hibs man has been playing out of his skin. He has scored eight and provided many more in 27 appearances this term, with countless man-of-the-match performances under his belt. You only have to check social media to see exactly what Scots have been missing for so long with a highlight reel of skills on show every week. The problem perhaps for Gold is that, as explained, he has been quietly going about his business. Now I'm not saying Clark and his coaching staff are not aware of his talents this campaign, but I do reckon it could very well be a case of out of sight, out of mind for the unlucky 25-year-old, but he would bring with him to the setup 
something we arguably do not have already. Even if we were to come off the bench during fixtures, gold could be a fresh spark and a tricky player we can't say we are blessed with. Ryan Fraser, for example, has pace. Ryan Christie has skill. But Ryan Gold has both. And Scotland could do a lot worse than get him on the plane. Aaron Hickey We exclusively revealed in Times that Hickey is due to have surgery soon. But the defender himself has admitted he's not sure when that may be and that he'd ideally put it off for a while anyway. We also exclusively told you that head coach Clark personally phoned Bologna to check on his progress. That is as decent an indicator as anything that the boss believes Hickey has a future in the setup. And what's ideal about that is the former Hart's kid, still only 18, is ambidextrous. He is as confident playing right back as he is on the left-hand side, and he has played in Serie A 12 times this season. That includes games against Inter Milan and Lazio, so his knowledge and experience is growing by the game. Yes, it might be a long shot, but he could be the outsider chance to take with us if there's a couple of extra spaces going. Lee Griffiths This is such a difficult one to think about. The Celtic striker on his day is unplayable. He has the ability to score from anywhere. He runs about and puts defenders under pressure. And he links play well. The problem is that his fitness levels leave a lot to be desired. Lennon said as much earlier this term, and John Kennedy, in his interim role as manager, has agreed since. However, Scotland are not blessed with strikers, and when a player who has scored 123 goals for the hoops is available, even to start on the bench and come on as a super sub, you take him. Billy Gilmer Gilmer has been at the centre of debate among Scotland fans in recent years. Clark has not yet picked him for the A squad, even after his man-of-the-match performances for Chelsea against Liverpool and Everton last season. There's no getting away from the fact that the midfielder is a top-class youngster with the potential to be a world-class pro in a few years. But he is not playing often enough for the Blues under Thomas Tuchel and faces pushing his way into Scotland's best position in the team. It is clear he is extremely highly regarded, but even with a 26-man squad, that might not be enough spaces to get him a call-up. Andy Considine Will he be boogieing all the way to the Euros? Aberdeen's form this season has not been the best, and at 34 years old, Considine's best years may well be behind him. Scotland have Grand Hanley, newly promoted to the Premiership with Norwich, Jack Henry, 
who won Belgium's Player of the Year, and Scott McKenna, who plies his trade in the Championship down south. Does Considine make it in before any of those players? With a 26-man squad, do Scotland need another centre-half, considering Kieran Tierney is likely to also be available, and McTominay of Manchester United can fill that void if need be? It's the same for Considine as it is for Declan Gallagher, in that there may not quite be space for them this time. The unfortunate reality, however, is that, th is that at 34 and 30 years old respectively, both players may be a bit too old to ever play at a major tournament for their country. Evening Time Sport, April 28. Celtic hero John Collins aims pop at Rangers' Alan McGregor over Scottish Cup exit. Report by Mark Hendry. John Collins has aimed a pop at Rangers' Alan McGregor after their elimination from the Scottish Cup. The Ibrox goalkeeper conceded late in the evening when Xander Clark got his head to a corner only for striker Chris Kane to poke the ball home in the dying seconds of extra time. Collins reckons McGregor should have been the man to take responsibility when Clark sprinted up the other end of the pitch to grab the assist, and the former Celtic defender pointed to all the credit Rangers defence have received this season as a signal to criticise lapses in equal measure. Speaking to BBC Sport Scotland, Collins questioned why McGregor was rooted to the spot on his line. He said, We've got to talk about the goal that Rangers have conceded. We have given them credit all season for being defensive. So you've got a goalkeeper who walks into a box, six foot four inches, five yards in front of the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper isn't screaming to his centre-half to pick him up, so if he's not screaming at his centre-half or somebody to pick him up, his mindset has got to be, I'm going to come for this cross. Where is the goalkeeper when the cross comes in? Stuck on his goal line. We've given him credit all season, but it's a shocking goal for Rangers to lose. The manager will be watching that, thinking, how is that possible? Somebody has walked into our box and nobody has thought he is a big guy and I'll pick him up. Report by Mark Hendry Evening Times Sport, April 28 Return to full contact rugby gives us a chance to tackle issues says Martin Hannan. Only if you have ever played rugby can you really talk with sense about the difference between our sport and all the others. And only if you have ever been hit in the ribs at speed by a full-on tackle or handed one out can you even begin to explain 
why rugby is the best of all contact sports. I have played or followed many contact sports for decades, including boxing and other martial arts, football, soccer, American and Australian rules, ice hockey, and the one I consider to be the most potentially dangerous of all, water polo. Put it this way, I played one game of water polo back in my 20s and never went back because nearly drowning wasn't fun. So many other sports have contact in them, such as field hockey and shinty. But shin pads reduce or should reduce the impact. I enjoyed basketball because by its own rules, it's a non-contact sport. Nevertheless, there were plenty of accidental contacts. Of the many sports I have played or watched, however, only rugby union and rugby league have tackling and other forms of bodily contact as integral parts of the game. Contact is not the raison d'etre of rugby, but it is hugely important. Scrums, lineouts, malls and rocks of necessity require contact and all the very best players I have ever watched committed their bodies to the various types of contact in rugby. To those of us who appreciate all aspects of rugby, we can revel in try-saving tackles as much as tries, and as a former prop forward, I look at scrums and nearly always know which loose head has got the better of the opposition tight head or vice versa. Believe me, the competition between front rows is a contact sport in itself. Best of all, putting in a good tackle on your opposite number, knocking him back or forcing him to spill the ball gives you a terrific feeling. You've bested him. You've done something for your team. And if carried out with correct technique on both sides, there's no lasting damage. Downing a tackle bag just doesn't have the same feeling as putting a human opponent on the ground, which is why I am glad for all those who play rugby in Scotland that full contact sport outdoors will soon be allowed as coronavirus restrictions are eased. It's already happening for many and youth rugby who are allowed full contact training and hopefully by the end of May those age groups will have full contact external fixtures. That's the current plan anyway. Adult full contact rugby is a bit longer away but unless the current progress in dealing with the pandemic is dramatically reversed we should see all restrictions lifted by the summer. It cannot come a minute too soon, because I have no doubt that significant numbers of players in community clubs are going away from the game, never to return. The resumption of full rugby is going to be very welcome. Yet, I would be lying if I did not say that I am worried that the contact element of rugby union is becoming a genuine problem for the sport. Those who follow the professional game 
know that the huge hits being inflicted by players are on the increase. And that's why I commend the sports authorities for all they are doing to tackle foul play and issues like concussion. I don't think rugby is doing enough to persuade parents, for example, that their little darlings will be safe if trained properly. Rugby simply must be made safer. I am not advocating for a second that we go down the route of American football's body armour, but is there some way of reducing the possibility of injury for players? If the laws stay as they are, then no, rugby will continue to have an unacceptable level of danger, not least in the tackle and ruck areas of the game. Ground-breaking Australian research has shown that half of all rugby injuries occur in the tackle, and the evidence has shown that poor technique on behalf of the tackler and the recipient is the underlying cause of tackle injuries. Rugby has already banned the spear tackle and mid-air hit, and there are more than a few people in the upper echelons of refereeing who are concerned about the full body slam or crash tackle. My fear is that tackling might be even more eroded, and that really would ruin rugby. My suggestion is this. No player at any level of the game should be allowed to take the field unless they can show that they can tackle and be tackled in as safe a manner as possible. There should be a tackling proficiency test for all rugby players. The post-COVID return would be a very good opportunity to introduce it, says Martin Hannan. Evening Times Sport, April 29 Celtic back social media boycott after highlighting racial and sectarian attacks. Report by the Press Association Celtic have highlighted racial and sectarian attacks and horrendous personal abuse against their players, staff and fans as they backed a social media boycott. Scottish football has made a collective decision to switch off all social media use from 3pm on Friday until midnight on Monday. The move mirrors English football's planned action in protest at abuse towards players with a number of other sports following suit. A Celtic statement read, as a club who has welcomed all since 1888, we are pleased to support this collective campaign. Sadly, through various social media platforms, Celtic players, staff and supporters for some time have been subjected to racial and sectarian attacks and horrendous personal abuse. This is something which simply has to stop. Abusing someone because of the colour of their skin. Abusing an individual due to religion. Unacceptable personal attacks or pathetically mocking the death of a loved one. 
Our players, staff and supporters have, tragically, experienced it all through social media. We must all make a stand and together defeat this negative, damaging behaviour which inflicts so much harm. Social media can be an important, powerful tool. Let's use it properly. Scottish football authorities announced their collective action on Wednesday evening. A joint statement announced that the game had united to support a boycott of social media in response to continuing racist and discriminatory abuse online aimed at players, staff, supporters and others associated with the game. Scottish Professional Football League Chief Executive Neil Doncaster said, Discrimination of any kind has absolutely no place in Scottish football and the online abuse received by some of those involved in our national game is absolutely abhorrent. Social media provides a wonderful platform for clubs of all sizes to communicate with their fans. It's a platform that our clubs have used to great effect in recent years, but it is also a medium that is being abused by a vile and mindless minority. These cowards often hide behind anonymous accounts and it is incumbent upon social media companies to actively and aggressively combat this problem. Scottish Football Association Chief Executive Ian Maxwell added, At our recent summit meeting involving clubs and representatives of the game, we witnessed a groundswell of people motivated to tackle inequality in all its forms. We are also in dialogue with social media companies to ensure adequate preventive measures are put in place to tackle the specific issue of online abuse via those channels. Vivian McLaren, Scottish Women's Football Chair, noted an increase in abusive and discriminatory language targeted at those involved in our game. This has been particularly prevalent on social media and we have made it very clear we will not tolerate this, she added. Report from the Press Association Evening Times Sport, April 29 Not so brilliant orange Andre Kanchelskis on how the Dutch cohort ended Dick Advocat's reign at Rangers. Report by Matthew Lindsay. Andre Kanchelskis witnessed firsthand how having too many Dutch players in his squad brought an end to Dick Advocat's reign as Rangers manager after two trophy-laden seasons at Ibrox. And he has warned Stephen Gerrard to be wary in the transfer market this summer as he seeks to sign new players who can help him build on the success he has enjoyed during the 2020-21 campaign. The winger was a member of treble and double winning sides during his first two seasons at Ibrox 
and also featured in the group stages of the Champions League for them. However, the Russian was unable to prevent Celtic from supplanting their city rivals as the dominant force in the country during his third term in Glasgow. The appointment of Martin O'Neill as manager and the capture of players like Neil Lennon, Chris Sutton, Alan Thompson and Yus Valgaren for multi-million pound fees ensured the Parkhead Club landed all three domestic trophies in 2001. However, Kanchelskis felt that having a massive contingent from advocates in native Netherlands in Govan at that time also proved costly. Bert Konterman, Ronald de Boer and Fernando Rixon all arrived at the start of that season and joined their compatriots Michael Malls, Arthur Newman and Giovanni van Brockhurst. The former Dynamo Kiev, Manchester United, Everton and Fiorentina player saw how the Rangers squad split into groups when their form dipped, results dried up and criticism started. Borna Barisic, Conor Golson, Glenn Kamara, Ryan Kent, Alfredo Morelos and James Tavernier have all been outstanding for Rangers this season and could be the subject of lucrative bids in the close season. The former Liverpool and England midfielder was devastated when his charges slumped to a penalty shootout defeat to St Johnson at home in the quarter-final of the Scottish Cup last Sunday. He is keen to retain the league trophy, do better in the cup competitions and make it through to the Champions League group stages next season and sporting director Ross Wilson and his recruitment team have drawn up a list of signing targets. Kanchelskis feels that Gerard, who has been linked with a move for Zambian striker Fashion Sakala of Belgian club Oostend this summer, must be careful to protect the strong team spirit in his squad. He said, I thought Glasgow Rangers was a very good club and their supporters were fantastic. I had great times in Glasgow. It was an excellent time in my career. I thought Scotland was a beautiful country and the people were very nice to me. We also had an excellent team. The first season was very good. We won the treble. The second season was good also. We won the double and got to the Champions League group stages. In the third season, we had problems. Dick Advocat brought in too many Dutch players. Before that, we only really had Giovanni, Arthur and Michael. But after that, he bought more Dutch players and there were too many of them. There were three groups, the Dutch players, the other foreign players, and the Scottish boys. The atmosphere wasn't great, there were problems. It would be a problem having too many players of any nationality at any club. If you have too many Brazilian players at a club, it would be a problem. It doesn't help the team. Steven Gerrard has done very well, but he must be careful not to make that same mistake.
Report by Matthew Lindsay. Evening Time Sport, April 29. Rangers keeping tabs on midfielder Joey Veerman. Report by James Kearney. Rangers are keeping tabs on Dutch midfielder Joey Veerman but could face stiff competition in the race for the playmaker's signature, according to reports. The 22-year-old Behrman has been in fine form in the Erie division this term, registering seven goals and providing nine assists for Herenveen. That hot streak has caught the attention of clubs all over the continent, with French outfit Stade Rem and Sare as Atalanta, tracking the talented youngster. English Premier League side Southampton and the Dutch duo Ajax and Feyenoord are also monitoring Vermin's situation. According to the Scottish Sun, it will take a sum of around £5 million to prize the playmaker away for Herenveen with Rangers mulling over a bid of their own. Such a fee would be a sizeable outlay for the Premiership champions, but the Ibrox coffers could be boosted by the sale of Yanis Hagi, who is a transfer target for Spanish outfit Seville and Italian giants Lazio. Christian Bivolaru, chief executive of Vittorio Constanta, the Romanian club, owned by Haggy's famous father, Georgia, said, I don't think the interest of Sevilla for Yanis is new. It was talked about before he went to Rangers. I do know Lazio are also on his track, so we'll see what happens. Report by James Kearney. Evening Times Sport, April 29. Alan Stubbs says that Celtic must appoint manager as soon as possible. Report by Graeme McGarry. Alan Stubbs has urged Celtic to appoint their new manager as soon as possible, with the club facing what could potentially be their biggest ever rebuilding job this summer. The former Celtic defender is concerned that the prolonged courtship of Eddie Howe to succeed Neil Lennon is still ongoing, with so much work to be done to reinvigorate the playing squad. With Scott Brown already leaving, and a host of players such as Odson Edward, Christopher Ager and Ryan Christie being linked with moves away, Stubbs says that his old club need to get a new manager in the door as a matter of urgency, particularly with the lucrative Champions League qualifiers now looming on the horizon. Stubbs said, Whoever is coming in, I can't stress enough that they need to be in as soon as possible because it's going to be very difficult to build a championship winning team in six weeks' time. To get all these players in is going to be so difficult, as well as trying to do well in Europe. I have spoken about Celtic this season, 
and they look short on so many fronts. There's such a huge job ahead. I think it could potentially be Celtic's biggest rebuild that they've ever seen. I think it's that big because of the amount of loan players that would be going back and because of the amount of players that they will be looking to leave. Just off the top of my head, there's a good chance Edward won't be there. There's a good chance Aja won't be there. There's been rumours around Christie being sold. Then you have all those lone players going back. Ella Nusi, who I think has been one of the better ones. And then you had the recruitment of certain players. You had Albion Ajeti, Patrick Klamala, who has obviously gone. The recruitment has been so far off it, with David Turnbull being the exception. He's been really good. He's been one of the bright sparks this year. There's so many question marks. I wouldn't be surprised if Celtic are in a position where they've got to recruit a whole new back four plus a keeper. You might have Mikey Johnson and James Forrest back, which will be a huge help, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's offers for Callum McGregor. Scott Brown is going. And the impact of that, not just off the pitch, but on the pitch too, is going to leave a huge void to fill. Stubbett knows of what he speaks, having been one of the few survivors of the Celtic cull of 97, when Wim Jansen cleared the decks and brought in 10 new players as the club went on to stop Rangers making it 10 in a row. For all that, it was the likes of Henrik Larsson who added that bit of stardust. Stubbs thinks that one essential ingredient of Jansen's squad, which Celtic currently lack, and which Rangers have right through their core, is of major significance. He said, even looking back to then, I think the mentality of players has changed. I don't want to say that we were better than what they are now, but society has changed. The one thing we had when stopped 10 in a row was a really strong dressing room. There was quite a British core to it. And when you look across at what Stephen Gerrard has done at Rangers, the predominant core of that group is British. They understand what is in front of them and what is needed. Whereas with the foreign players, though they might give you that little bit of extra quality, they can sometimes lack in terms of that feeling of the club and being part of it. I look at the two teams now, and at Rangers, there is a real togetherness, and everybody knows what is expected of them in terms of their jobs. I look at Celtic, and I see an individualism with them and not a collective team. In Stubbs' estimation, another contributory factor to the fragmented nature of the Celtic squad is the number of loan players currently at the club, with Shane Duffy, John Joe Kenny, Diego Laxalt and Moy Elanusi all set to return to their parent clubs this summer. While fans would no doubt like to see Elanusi stick around at least, 
Stubbs has warned against another raft of lone arrivals this time around. He said, You have got to be careful that you don't bring in players that use the club as a springboard and they buy into what you want to do. That is huge. When you have so many loan signings, it's very difficult for them to really get a feel for the club because whether it's for six months or a season, it doesn't bring stability for me. It's very easy when things are not going well for people to say, you know what, I can go back to my parent club. But when you've got a player there who's there for a number of years, you have to buy into what is needed. I really don't feel as if the foreign players, and I don't want to put all the blame on them as that's not right, but in terms of understanding the enormity of what was at stake this season, if they did get it, then it didn't come across that they got it. Report by James Kearney Evening Times Sport, April 30 Boxing Kieran Smith ready for British title eliminator in toughest test yet. Report by Susan Egglestaff. It has been a long time coming, but finally Kieran Smith is ready to step into the ring for a British title eliminator. For almost 18 months since his last competitive appearance, a win which saw him retain his WBC International Silver Super Welterweight title. Smith has had his sights set on a final eliminator for the British title and at last he is now ready for the dream becoming reality. Tonight Smith will take on Troy Williamson in London with the winner becoming mandatory challenger for the British welterweight belt, currently held by Englishman Ted Cheeseman. The final preparations are completed. The sparring has been done. The weight has been made. And the plan for fight night has been poured over. And after so long without competitive action, Smith cannot wait to hear the first bell in what he believes will be the start of a new chapter in his career. The 27-year-old, who is unbeaten in 16 pro fights, says, I'm desperate to get in there and get the ball rolling. Williamson is a good opponent and it's a 50-50 fight, but with the right tactics and a good performance, I firmly believe I'll get through it. This will be my toughest test to date and this is the next step on the ladder that I've been waiting on. That it's an elimin eliminator adds another edge. But this is what it's all about. Fighting on the big stage for big titles. Two final eliminators have fallen through. So it's really exciting that this is now happening. I'm ready and focused and I can't wait to get in there. A competitive swimmer in his youth, Smith took up boxing at the age of 11 and he admits he became 
and has remained well and truly hooked by the feeling you get ahead of a fight. The West Lothian fighter says, Boxing is just unlike any other sport. It's a whole different ball game to say sitting in a changing room with 10 other guys waiting to go out for a football match to sitting in a changing room, getting your hands wrapped, preparing to go to war with somebody. I love that side of boxing. It's all down to you. Smith may have spent the past year yearning for a fight, but he has been far from bored throughout the pandemic. He is, he admits, unable to sit still and began running and cycling with some of his endeavours on the bike particularly testing. And while there are few obvious similarities between riding a bike and boxing, there are a number of positives Smith believes he can draw on now boxing is back up and running. He said, I did a 12 hour cycle on the turbo and it was horrible. That was really tough. And I got into road cycling too. So I did a 172 mile cycle round Scotland with one of my friends who's a professional cyclist. That was good. I have got an active mind and I'm always looking for a challenge. So I just thought I'd go for it. It's a totally different type of fitness to boxing, but there's a lot of things I can take into boxing from it. It shows what your body can do and how you can push through things. Smith may be fully focused on his bout with Williamson later tonight, but already in the back of his mind is the prospect of getting his hands on the British belt. If he is to fulfil his prediction of defeating Williamson, Smith expects to have a shot at the British title as soon as summertime. And were he to become British champion, it would be yet another boost for Scottish boxing, which is going through something of a purple patch at the moment. And Smith is determined to become one of the fighters helping to propel the sport in this country forward. He says, winning the British title would be massive for me. It'd be brilliant to have my name up there. There's guys like Josh Taylor and Lee McGregor doing really well, and that's great to see. I'm really pally with both Josh and Lee, so it'd be great if I could be one of the fighters up there winning belts. Report by Susan Egglestaff. Evening Times Sport, April 30. John McGinn recalls agonising Celtic move weight, making big Hibs call, and Aston Villa detail which swayed deal. Report by Mark Hendry. John McGinn has lifted the lid on his failed Celtic move. The Aston Villa midfielder went into great detail on the interest from his boyhood club whilst he was enjoying superb form for Hibs in the Scottish Premiership. It is no secret McGinn's first choice 
was to move from Easter Road to Parkhead and live his dream as a hoops player. But the transfer never came to fruition despite his and Hibbs desire and willingness to get a deal done. McGinn, speaking with Graeme Hunter on his Big Interview podcast, explained how during a trip in European football with the High Bees to the Faroe Islands, he was asked not to play at risk of being cup-tied when he eventually does make his move to Celtic for their upcoming qualifiers. He revealed he was told the then champions would be lodging an offer on that day, only to end up waiting and waiting before deciding to play for Hibs that evening. McGinn remains proud of his decision. He revealed, My agent actually said about Villa coming in 12 months before I went there, but in my head I'm thinking Celtic might come in. When that first offer comes in, you start thinking it's done, it's going to happen, so it was just a waiting game. The longest waiting game ever it ended up being. I've ended up back for pre-season and it was, ironically, Neil Lennon who was Hibbs manager at the time. Hibbs were amazing. It's not a popular decision if you go from Hibbs to Celtic, but I think everyone, the supporters, the board, we all had an understanding that it was what I wanted and I respect that I wouldn't kick the door down. I wouldn't want to ruin what I'd built at Hibbs. I thought it had to work both ways and initially it wasn't happening like that. We ended up getting a wee bit more guarantees that things were going to progress. I remember driving to a European qualifier in the Faroe Islands with Hibs. I'd been told Celtic are going to make an offer today and not to play in the game. That I'd be cup-tied for the European games coming up for Celtic. So I'm waiting all day. Nothing happens. I'm going round these winding roads in the Faroe Islands, not knowing if I'm actually playing in the game or not. To be fair to Leanne Dempster and everyone at Hibs, they were waiting as well. They didn't know what was going on. So I'm out checking the pitch. I don't know why, because it was AstroTurf. But Neil Lennon came out. We were speaking, and he was so good at that. One of the best man-managers I've had, so relatable, knew what I was going through and what I wanted at the time. The offer didn't come for whatever reason. So I remember speaking to the manager. Then I phoned my dad and the agent and I just thought, you know what, I'm playing in the game. Nothing's happened. I played, scored that night. And it was a good performance in a bit of a wild game. I was proud of myself because I thought, this isn't right, I need to play in this game. I believed in myself as a player. If someone wants me, they can try a wee bit harder to get me. Then doubt got into my head and I'm thinking, is this the right thing? Then it started becoming a wee bit of a sitcom. It was getting more and more publicity. 
offers eventually came in and then you start thinking you're from the west of Scotland you switch on super scoreboard every now and again and you've got Jimmy from Bargeddy phoning in saying oh he's no gonna get a game and that was quite a popular opinion at the time then you start to worry am I making a decision with my heart here am I going to go sit on the bench McGinn revealed that doubt did indeed creep into the psyche, but not for long. He added, At that time, Celtic had an unbelievable midfield who had gelled together. Stuart Armstrong was still there. Ryan Christie, Scott Brown, Olivier and Nitcham, all playing at the top of their game. There was no doubt I had the belief that I'd go there and play. But then I had to weigh up everything. I still, in my head, wanted to play for Celtic, no doubt. But then eventually time went on and it was August. I don't know how it managed to get to August, but I started to become quite good at just playing and it probably spurred me on to play better. That spell was probably some of the best football I've played in my career. We managed to win in Greece in Europe, had a good start to the season. I ended up just being content playing football and block out the noise. There wasn't really a resolution. Then Villa got a takeover and I knew there was a wee bit of interest. Next thing you know I'm walking around the Edinburgh Festival and my agent phones asking if I'd like to have a look around at Villa. I'm like Aye, I'll have a look. Didn't end up coming back. McGinn had allowed his dream of playing for Celtic escape his mind and was delighted when Steve Bruce came in for him at Villa and he revealed the key detail the then English Championship outfit added to their pursuit of him that sealed the deal. He explained we went to the training ground and the stadium and I felt the way I was treated was perfect. That was a hard moment because I remember speaking to my mum and dad and we'd resigned ourselves to defeat with Celtic. Mum and dad grew up etched in Celtic. I wanted to play for Celtic but it just wasn't right. Maybe in the future, you never know, but that is something I can't affect now it's past. There was a bit of me I had a bit to prove to a number of people. English football didn't have a clue who I was which I quite liked. I thought fresh start. People up the road who thought I couldn't play for Celtic. You're lying if you say you don't think I'll show you. But I'm proud of the way I dealt with it because it would have been easy to do the wrong thing. There was something surreal the night I went to Villa Park. They were quite clever. They left the floodlights on. Knew I loved number seven, so that shirt was there. Walked me into box seven. Everything about it was class. My dad knew I'd made my mind up. Now it wasn't even the case I had to choose. There was never a stage it was on A or a B. The A was just there. From there I got flung straight into the game against Wigan. It was just mad.
Report by Mark Hendry. Evening Times Sport, April 30. Matthew Lindsay says East Fife affair raises questions over Dubai Gate treatment of Celtic. Neil Lennon did not exactly hold back when he spoke publicly for the first time since being forced to enter quarantine after Celtic's ill-fated warm weather training trip to Dubai in January. Lennon was livid that so many players and staff had to self-isolate as a result of Christopher Julian's positive coronavirus test result and made his feelings well known. What would he have to say about the football authorities' handling of the pandemic now? What would his take on the East Fife vs Clyde affair be? It is safe to assume he would have a few choice words. The Methyl Club's players declined to play the League One encounter at Broadwood on Tuesday night after one of the home side's players returned a positive COVID-19 test. The visitors' manager, Darren Young, stated that several members of his squad, not least those whose partners were pregnant and those who were self-employed, had reservations about fulfilling the fixture due to fears over their well-being. Young insisted the Clyde player who was found to have contracted the virus in a test carried out on the day of the league game against Peterhead at Balmoor little over 72 hours earlier, had been in the changing room, done the warm-up and mixed with his teammates. He had also been on one of two buses which had made the long journey back from Aberdeenshire following the 3-0 defeat. The move seemed eminently sensible in the circumstances, even though it contravened the Joint Response Group JRG directive to play. But East Fife were yesterday fined £11,000, £1,000 of which is payable to the SPL Trust now, and £10,000 of which is suspended for their players' actions after an SPFL disciplinary hearing. They admitted to breaching SPFL rules G3 and G53 and agreed to replay the game next Thursday. An SPFL spokesman said, Clearly, the circumstances surrounding Tuesday's match were difficult for all involved. However, the advice from members of the Joint Response Group was clear and unequivocal. Following such advice, which is informed by frequent discussions with the ESCAG, that's the Elite Sports Clinical Advice Group, has been and remains crucial to achieving an orderly conclusion to SPFL competitions. While the SPFL has sympathy with players who may not have had all relevant information, no league or other football body 
can accept a situation in which a club fails to fulfil a match in circumstances where all of the medical advice is that the match can safely proceed. There has been no recorded cases worldwide of any on-pitch transmission of COVID-19. We would like to thank East Fife for their early admission of the charges. We appreciate the difficult position of the East Fife Football Club board faced with a decision having been made by their players. The world is a different place now since the start of the year. Infection rates are on the decrease and lockdown restrictions are slowly but surely being relaxed. Still this bizarre and quite frankly concerning episode does raise some serious questions. Why did 14 Celtic players and three members of staff have to quarantine back in January when Julian was found to have COVID-19? The Parkhead Club were adamant that correct social distancing restrictions had been put in place and observed. Said Lennon, we followed the protocols, but it has backfired on us because the goalposts have been moved. The Northern Irishman was furious. Celtic had to field understrength sides against Hibernian and Livingston. They drew both of those home games and dropped four points. Any hopes they had of staging a comeback in the Premiership were ended by those results. The JRG and the ESCAG were involved in the discussions over whether the Clyde versus East Fife game should go ahead and were satisfied that it could. They felt that nobody involved could be considered a close contact of the infected player. It is unlikely, inconceivable in fact, that anyone involved on in those groups would willingly endanger anyone. But from the outside looking in, it makes little sense. It seems to many members of the public as if they are just waiting to get all of their games played as scheduled and the season concluded on time. Sure, players can't take matters into their own hands, but in this instance, weren't their misgivings entirely justifiable? The East Fife officials, coaching staff and players were unanimous. Perhaps the GRG were right, but isn't it incumbent on them to explain clearly and precisely why they gave the game the go-ahead? East Fife certainly had no faith in their ruling. There is too little clarity and too much confusion as things stand. This episode does nothing to instill confidence or trust in those running the game at a time when that is very much required if Scottish football is to emerge from this unprecedented crisis unscathed, says Matthew Lindsay. Evening Times Sport, April 30. McCall family mark birthday in style as Jags clinch League One title. 
Report by James Kearney. A visibly emotional Ian McCall revealed his pride in his Patrick Thistle players as the Jags swept aside Gary Holt's Falkirk 5-0 to seal the League One title in emphatic fashion. Given the club's contentious relegation to the third tier last summer, when the previous campaign was brought to a shuddering halt, there was a touch of redemption around Thistle's success this term, even if McCall stopped short of mentioning last season's off-field civil war. For the 56-year-old though, getting the Jags back in the second tier was always the primary goal this season with the Thistle boss adding that last night's victory was a particularly sweet one in the McCall household. He said, It was some way to win a championship. I think since we came back we've won seven and drawn four. We've got a real potent threat going forward. I'm just delighted as we played really well to win it. Everyone who's met me away from football knows how I have been feeling, but isn't it? time to talk about it. I'm just delighted for Chairman Jackie Lowe and all our supporters. I just said, it's not the Scottish Cup and it's not the League Cup in 21 and 71, but it's a trophy for us. I'm very proud of the players and it's a good birthday present for my mum, Emma, who's 87 today. There's a lot of things that have happened but I don't think now is the time to talk about it. The last four home games we've won, I think we've scored 15 goals and not lost a goal, so we've done well. Report by James Kearney Evening Time Sport, April 30 Olivier Nitchum transfer latest as Marseille president snubs mention of Celtic loanee in summer update. Report by Mark Hendry Olivier Nitchum looks certain to return to Celtic this summer after Marseille's president snubbed any mention of the midfielder when discussing transfers and the future of the squad. Nitchum has had a difficult time in France with the League One outfit since joining on loan this season. Then manager Andre Villas-Boas was livid the club opted to sign the player without his full backing and it led to his resignation as boss. New head coach Jorge Sampaoli has not provided Nitchum with much game time either since taking over with the Loney playing just one minute of football since March. And when outlining future plans for the club, as well as potential incomings, club president Pablo Longoria made no mention of the Hoops man, though he seemed to wax lyrical about everyone else. He said on the Millic question, or the questions on the transfer window, it is difficult to make categorical decisions. For Millic, it is a loan with obligation to buy and a payment for instalments. 
it is almost impossible for Milik to return to Napoli. We have control of everything when it comes to Milik, but for a transfer in modern football, there are three parties, the player, the selling club and the buying club. The player is happy to be here, but in the market everything is open, especially with a player like Milik. We are going to have a very complicated summer market, but the player's desire is to extend with OM. We have a lot of players on loan and at the end of their contracts. We have to build a squad with new players in a lot of positions. It is necessary to give profiles adapted with the game of the coach. We are working a lot ahead of the transfer window. Names will come out in the press. We are going to create a mix of experienced players able to withstand the pressure and young players. For Lerola and Ballardi, we'll discuss with their agents. You have to find a balance between the seller and the buyer. We are very happy with Paul and Leo. Report by Mark Hendry. And that was this week's Glasgow Times Sport podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.